Coming up on Stu Does America, if yesterday's show wasn't enough to make you completely despise white people, then tonight ought to do the trick. And speaking of overtly white people, my friend Dan Andros from Faithwire joins the program to talk about the never-ending implosion of the Washington Redskins, which makes me so happy. I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners for their downloads, subscriptions, ratings, and reviews. Remember, five stars is the appropriate amount of stars. You all think the show is great, whatever, right? I'd also like to thank our YouTube viewers for subscribing to the channel, commenting on, and liking all of the videos, especially when you do it right now at the start of the episode. Like it, like it now, before I've pissed you off and scared you away. But enough about you freeloaders. A true thank you to the Blaze TV subscribers out there who get access to this show and a ton of others. If you'd like to join the exclusive club, just head to blazetv.com slash stew and use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. All right, all you whiteys out there, get yourself hate going because tonight we are bashing white people. Stew does America. So what do you want to do with your tax dollars other than get them back? Maybe help a sick kid, buy some gear for the military, unleash the surveillance state against an enemy. Or would you reveal the aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture? That's what the Smithsonian did with all of your money. And if you haven't seen this, it is truly amazing. We have an update on the story in a minute, but first we need to go through some of the details. Here are the characteristics they assign to white culture. And remember, they're saying this is a bad thing. Self-reliance, taking responsibility for your own future is something only whites do. Hmm, isn't that just a bit offensive? How about independence, highly valued and rewarded by white culture? White people apparently highly value independence. Who doesn't aspire to be independent? It's one thing to want a structure that values a safety net. It's another to want to be dependent. What are you saying about people of color? The nuclear family, father, mother, 2.3 children, is the ideal social unit. White culture finds the nuclear family to be ideal. We've got some centuries of evidence on this one, but again, are you implying non-whites want broken homes? Children should have their own rooms. White culture desires that children have their own rooms. Uh, again, do you want a pile of kids in the basement? I mean, I know I don't. I lived in a you know, suburban area of Connecticut, and tons of my friends shared rooms with siblings. There's nothing wrong with that, but they all wanted their own rooms. Wanting a little bit of privacy is not a white characteristic. But that's nothing compared to objective, rational, linear thinking. The fact the Smithsonian refers to objective, rational, linear thinking as part of white culture is so insulting. The implication here is that African-Americans don't think rationally. I'm sorry, what? Black people aren't objective? Was this document written by the Smithsonian or by Richard Spencer? Quantitative emphasis. Oh, quantitative emphasis. My favorite. Like, you know, numbers and facts matter. Now, that very well might be assigned to conservative culture, but it's got nothing to do with race. I did a monologue recently about a far left liberal a democratic socialist who tweeted about an academic study showing violent protests hurt their movement. No opinion, just tweeted the study. He was one of these left wing data scientist wonderkins, you know, kind of a partisan Nate Silver or Harry Enten but worked behind the scenes of a campaign. This is a valuable guy for the Democratic Party. But he pointed to research 
opposing violent protests, and he was fired. The show was called Stu Does Progressive Meltdowns. Go back and watch it on YouTube for all the insane details. But as this guy was excommunicated from a liberal message board for his supposed crimes, the message, uh, messages leaked out of them discussing the incident. And there was a shocking amount of anti-data propaganda. The best example that says so much about the modern left, quote, for those of you who don't realize what makes this tweet prob- problematic, try not to overanalyze the statistical validity of the research paper and think about the broader impact it will have if people perceive it to be true. That is completely the opposite of what you should do. Ben Shapiro says facts don't care about your feelings. The left is saying feelings don't care about your facts. This is a a bizarre development. There is a significant and increasing movement within the modern left uh, situation right now that is going against data. If it gives you results that make people feel bad, you shouldn't acknowledge it. It's why you encourage people to go out and protest during a pandemic. And it's dangerous. More supposed white culture. Hard work is the key to success. One of the secrets of capitalism and having success in capitalism is to simply believe in it. You believe in it, you push yourself, and you succeed. That's why they want to undermine this one. It's a big deal. How about work before play? Again, this is just racism. Are you accusing non-whites of avoiding hard work? They want to party before they're getting their their work done? Thanks for the input, David Duke. Plan for future. (laughs) This is not a white thing. It's a thing that everybody does if they're responsible. White people do it. Black people do it. Frigging squirrels do it. Delayed gratification. Ah, yes, because people of color just chase pleasure wherever they see it without even a thought of the consequences. Even the KKK is cringing at this stuff. And I'll point out, you're in a majority white country that invented the drive through I don't think delayed gratification is a strong point for white people either. Follow rigid time schedules. Only white people follow time schedules. So you're basically saying that black people show up late. Did they just pull this off an alt-right message board? I don't even... How did this happen? And finally, be polite. (laughs) Being polite is part of white culture? This is amazingly offensive. This supposed movement for racial justice is setting this discussion back decades. I hope they remember to put the burning cross out before they went home for the night. Well, after Glenn Beck talked about this on his show earlier this week, they finally pulled the thing from their site. They posted a statement which read, in part, since yesterday, certain content in the talking about race portal has been the subject of questions that we have taken seriously. We have listened to public sentiment and have removed a chart that does not contribute to the productive discussion we had intended. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. You might think that this is a step in the right direction, but that's only because you haven't looked at what they left up on the site. We'll, we'll go through that next. If you've been paying attention to the news lately, you probably have heard of Robin D'Angelo. 
the completely ridiculous author of White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. They may have pulled down the offensive flyer from the Smithsonian website, but they had no problem leaving Robin D'Angelo's crap up there, including this video, oddly sponsored by the United Methodist Church. And to start this off, I want to draw your attention to the fact that I'm white. What? So just look at me for a moment, <gasps> think about it, notice it. Oh my and part of being white is that is a very uncomfortable thing for me to do. Oh. And it's taken me many, many years to be able to draw people's attention to my race and see any significance in it. Oh, okay. And that's because as a white person, I was socialized to see race as what they had. I was just a person. I, oh. I was just a white bread, a Heinz 57. Uh, I didn't have race. <laughs> First question, do you even know what Heinz 57 is? Heinz 57 is not white. It's not like saying white bread. How can I trust you on the dynamics of racism when you don't even understand condiments? Apparently some people, I guess, use Heinz 57 to say they're a mixed breed. But honestly, I'm honestly just now hungry. So how did she come up with all these deep condiment-related thoughts? A vision. Mm. Let's hear her explain it. I got this image of a dock, like a pier, and it's just floating on the water, and that's all the superficial things that we say. And you probably recognize some of these, you hear them, maybe you've said them yourself. I don't see color. I was taught to treat everybody the same. I don't care if you're pink, blue, purple, polka dotted. My parents weren't racist, that's why I'm not racist. Or my parents were racist, that's why I'm not racist. Oh. It doesn't really matter what goes in front of it. Hmm. The answer is always, I'm not racist. Uh-huh. I know people of color. I used to work uh, in the military. All of the things we say to rationalize um, that we ourselves are not complicit in this system. Those aren't ways of rationalizing your complicity in racism. They are giving evidence that they are not complicit, which she thinks is impossible. But more importantly, she is leading a movement that is a full frontal assault on Martin Luther King's vision of content of character instead of color of skin. They won't quite say that yet, but they are attacking his legacy because they know he did not agree with this. He wanted a world of equality. He wanted a colorblind society. She is explicitly saying that I don't see color is a sign of racism. To illustrate, for a long time, orchestras were oddly white, even though some, and you may have noticed this, some African-Americans occasionally have been known to have a bit of musical talent. It was still mostly whitey behind the cello. To solve this, orchestras implemented blind auditions. It was like the precursor to the voice. They would audition behind a screen so that the, you know, only the quality of their ability would matter. The ultimate meritocracy. But in the world of white fragility, merit is the enemy. They don't want you to be judged by merit. They want you to be judged by the color of skin, not content of character. To that end, in the New York Times, today, I kid you not, to make orchestras more diverse, end blind auditions. If ensembles are to reflect the communities they serve, the audition process should take into account race, gender, and other factors. This is straight out of the playbook of white fragility. Quoting from the book, 
one line of King's speech in particular, though one day he might be able judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin, was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend that we don't see race and racism will end. Colorblindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting they didn't see race or, if they did, that it had no meaning to them. Guys, they are going after the legacy of freaking Martin Luther King Jr. Nothing is sacred. They will be tearing down statues of the guy before you know it. Matt Taibbi wrote a scathing review of white fragility, and he mentions the same thing, the rejection of King's dream of racial harmony, not even as a description of the obviously flawed present, but as an aspirational goal of a better future, has become a central tenet of this brand of anti-racist doctrine mainstream press outlets are rushing to embrace. Yes, that is exactly what they're doing. Who would have thought this craziness was possible? If you're of a certain age, you are going to see MLK go from enemy of the state to civil rights hero back to enemy of the state. Robin D'Angelo saves her highest level of scorn. For one thing, you might just have said yourself from time to time. The one I want to speak to is this common trope of I don't care if you're pink, purple, polka dotted. If that's in your vocabulary, I would urge you to please drop it and never say it again. (gasps) Although it isn't intentional, it's actually very demeaning. People don't come in those colors. They don't. And what it conveys is that you're not prepared to engage with authenticity. Well, what if they identify as those colors? Then what? By the way, that's not what it conveys at all. You might hear that because you're nuts. What the phrase is actually conveying is, sure, I acknowledge you look a little different, but I will treat you the same. To show you that this is true, let me give you a hypothetical. Even if you looked incredibly different, pink, purple, polka dot, like impossibly different, I would still treat you the right way because you're a person and your appearance shouldn't be a factor in the way you're treated. Is that so bad? Is this really the problem in our country? Again, this whole speech, oddly sponsored by the United Methodist Church, is still up on the Smithsonian site, along with all sorts of other variations of crazy. Maybe we'll go over that a little bit more later in the show. It's hard to end this, though, without again going back to the extensive review from Matt Taibbi. He writes, D'Angelo isn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked up pseudo intellectual horse s horse crap as uh, corporate wisdom, but she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory. I would give a slight asterisk to that one because I would say Hitler himself also did that. He also mentions the quality of the writing in White Fragility. (laughs) D'Angelo writes like a person who was put in a timeout as a child for speaking clearly. (laughs) Remember, Matt Taibbi's no conservative. He's just recognizing that this book sucks. He has eyes. And he went on to highlight this truly mystifying section about Jackie Robinson and his breaking of the color barrier in baseball. Quoting from White Fragility, the story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African to break African-American to break the color line. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext 
is that Robinson's, uh, finally, Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. Imagine if instead the story went something like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play in Major League Baseball. I will leave you with Taibbi's review of this particular point because I just don't think I could do it better. There is not a single baseball fan anywhere, literally not one, except perhaps Robin D'Angelo, I guess, who believes Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier because he finally had what it took to play with whites. Everyone familiar with this story understands that Robinson had to be exceptional both as a player and as a human being to confront the racist institution known as Major League Baseball. Robinson's story, moreover, did not render whites and white privilege and racist institutions invisible. It did the opposite. Robinson uncovered a generation of job inflation for mediocre white ballplayers in a dramatic example of privilege that was keenly understood by baseball fans of all races 50 years before white fragility. It takes a special kind of ignorant for an author to choose an example that illustrates the mathematical opposite of one's intended point. But this is not uncommon in white fragility, which may be the dumbest book ever written. All right, when it comes to your future, dream big. The bigger, the better. And the dream of a better tomorrow starts with a degree from Ashford University. Ashford uh, University's online bachelor's and master's degree programs allow you to learn on a convenient and flexible schedule. Whenever you can do it, they can do it. Expert faculty teaches you real-world skills from real-world experience in online classes. You can pursue a degree in one of Ashford's 60-plus programs like business administration, healthcare administration, and psychology. Psychology. Ashford uh, gives you the tools you need to help make your dreams a reality. You gotta dream big in life, you got it, or it's just gonna be, it's gonna be boring and you're gonna want something better. Dare to dream big. There's no fee to apply or standardized testing required to enroll. Go to ashford.edu slash stew. The slash stew part is important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. That's ashford.edu slash stew. Not all programs are available in all states. It's ashford.edu slash stew. Welcome back to the program. Managing editor of Faith Wire, Dan Andros. Dan, I assume you've read White Fragility cover to cover several times. Oh, yeah. I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> You're going to be surprised. Several people have not. Um, I was amazed by the uh, Matt Taibbi uh, review of it. And he's a great writer. I don't always agree with him, but he's a, he's a talented writer. Uh, he writes this as well. Let me give another excerpt from his review. If your category is white, bad news. You have no identity apart from your participation in white supremacy. Anti-blackness is foundational to our very identities. Whiteness has always been predicated on blackness, which naturally means, quote, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. D'Angelo instructs us there is nothing to be done here except strive to be less white. Hmm. I think we're done here. I mean, I think we're good. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I'm not sure how to be less white. Like they, the, 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 com, uh, the, 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 the conflict here is, is clear where they're telling you um, you need to be less white. 
but you also need to notice how white you are all the time. It needs to be basically the main focus of your entire life. Now, obviously, I know, uh, and she talks about this, she's aware of the way people were taught to not think about race, to go for a colorblind society. She just thinks a colorblind society is wrong. Yeah, and it's really weird, uh, you know, reading through some of her stuff. And and by the way, that article you mentioned should be required reading for um, yes. everybody in America today because, I mean, he does a better job than I could ever hope to of, of shredding the ridiculousness <laughs> of of this uh, theology that she sort of created out of thin air. And, and that's really what it feels like to me is this sort of, uh, like a, I don't know, almost like a Scientology type of thing where somebody just decided to invent this theory. And, you know, you see some of the language she uses where it's like, um, it's really hard to see sometimes. And it's super, it's it's almost invisible. That's because you're completely making it up. <laughs> um, so, you know, and it is, it really does force us to like, you know, it puts you in this this trap where um, you you have to sit here and say, well, here's the premise. All white people are bad. It's all systemic. It's all, you know, um, you know, white, you know, we can't be anything other than racist, as you were just saying. Uh, but then if you deny that and you, you disagree with that sentiment, then you are also part of the, that's the white fragility. You're unable to talk about it. So it's like this vicious loop that she's created that we're all stuck in as white people and we either agree with her or we agree with her. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way she's left it. Yeah, and you always have a problem that you're always trying to manage and can never cure, which is a great thing if your job happens to be uh, a consultant to help companies deal with racism. Um, because it, it's a never-ending problem that only you can help but can never actually solve. It's, it's, a, it's, it's quite a grift, Dan. Yeah, it is. And uh, it reminds me a lot, uh, Stu, of, of something that you and I are familiar with, of those mar- multi-level marketing scams. And, uh, and, yeah. um, or scam, I'm sorry, did I say scams? Yeah. Legitimate businesses, mm-hmm. Stu. Yes. Um, but, but one of the things they do is that they say, you know, if, if you're not selling, uh, it's your fault. They blame you. So the blame's always on you. The product, the system, that's always perfect. But it's the same thing here, that if you can't figure it out, then you're the problem. And um, it is an amazing grift that she set up because you're, you're right. I mean, she's going to be set up to profit off this. And she does, by the way, that's what she does. She goes around to corporations and does diversity training, which amazingly, these corporations are lining up to do. And of course, they're doing it out of fear. Mm-hmm. No one's doing this because they're like, wow, we all need to learn about our white fragility. No, they're just doing it. It's a totally a, you know, it's a safe, it's an insurance policy, essentially, for when the woke mob comes after them yeah, and they can say, well, I mean, we had the white fragility lady here. Mm-hmm. What else did you want me to do? Yeah, exactly. It's a way to, it's a get out of jail free card that you can purchase. Uh, and it's really, it's embarrassing that these companies do this. They deserve every little bit that they get when it comes to heat <laughs> because it's, it's, it's not honest. And you know, the title of white fragility in and of itself is so ridiculous. It's like, who is fragile here? You're the person who's saying that everybody's getting crushed by every little racial slight, every little minor joke uh, crushes someone. They crumble in the corner. They, you know, she talks about how um, you know certain parts of white culture are inaccessible to blacks, and therefore uh, they can't make it through life. Well, who's fragile when you're talking about that? I don't believe that's true, but she believes it's true, and she's describing that people of color are the ones that are fragile. Yeah, it really is. It really is something else. And when you when you think about that um, and you look at somebody like Nick Cannon, who is getting all the grief right now for uh, for, you know, for his comments about white people and racist comments, 
you know, blatantly racist comments and he and he goes after Jewish people as well, anti-Semitic comments. But then he come ba- comes back in his apology. I think you covered this, Stu, but but he he kind of is like, well, you know, this is just showing that they're going to f- want to keep the black man down. And this is the, the yeah. you know white supremacy that's going on. And it's like, well, wait a minute, dude. I read your story. I didn't know much about it. But he had got like a job at MTV or something when he was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And they offered him all this stuff. Like you've had he's a multimillionaire now and he's and he's running all these businesses like you've had way more opportunity than me. Probably than you, Stu. And I mean, you know, I I don't know anybody that had jobs at MTV when they were a teenager. I mean, this I mean, it's absurd. The guy is in the elite of the elite of the upper class. And he's sitting here whining about about, you know, the system. And um, and so, yeah, it's it's all ridiculous. It really is. Um, let me show you this video. This is uh, also on the Smithsonian website. This is a website you paid for with your tax dollars. Um, it's talking mm. about how you should discuss uh, issues of race with children. Watch. Race is one of those touchy subjects you don't really want to get into because you're afraid you might mess up. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that as early as three years old, children are classifying people based on their appearances. And so the worst conversation adults can have with kids about race is no conversation at all. OK, that is just blatantly not true. David Duke probably talked to his kids a lot about race and it would be better if he had had no conversation at all, I'm sure. Um, but I, I, I love this idea that you should be talking to three year olds about race. I know that my kids have, uh, you know, lots of friends and they do not categorize them that way. Some are black, some are white. They're friends with them because they like them. And it hasn't entered their mind at all that they should separate them because of race. And yet here we go. We have schools all across America, Dan, that because of what's happened here are jumping into diversity training for little children to teach them and emphasize race as if it should be a separating characteristic. That seems to me to be crazy. It is. And, uh, you know, you think of the innocence of a child. And and sometimes when we look at children, of course, we see, you know, I mean, you see kids fight and all those sorts of things. But, you know, generally speaking, there's there's that innocence there because they don't have an awareness of all of the history yet in the world. You know, all the things that have happened in the past, slavery and all that stuff. And um, and so, yeah, it's it's what let's just rip that innocence right away from them and just say, hey, you know what? Um, stop looking at all the kids because you're a racist. Um, you know, it just seems unwise. You know, there, there are opportunities, you know, when, when, if your kid, cause kids do say things like about if they notice, if they do point out someone's different color and you say, Hey, that's great. That's just the way God made them. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. And you move on. Like, it just seems like that's the easy thing to do. And, and it's interesting Stu, in that clip too. He said, he said, the reason why people are afraid to say it again, like to your point, I don't think that's three-year-olds aren't sitting there going, gee, I don't want to, I don't want to bring up race because I might mess it up. <laughs> right. Um, but, th- but they're thinking about messing it up. Why? Because the movement behind it is a bullying movement. And if you say something wrong uh, or that, that the woke culture doesn't like, well, they're going to cancel the heck out of you. So, uh, so there's a bullying movement out there that's either my way or the highway. And so that's why people are afraid. And they're just sort of imparting that onto kids. But I don't, that's not at all what kids think. Kids no. just generally have a more innocent view of the world because they're, they haven't been jaded by it all yet. Right. And, 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 you know, kids are happy and they're not jaded by the world. And, and why rip that away from them and teach them, hey, by the way, you should notice these differences because uh, <laughs> it's, it's, that is what the movement is. And, you know, Taibi talked about it here. We've talked about it before as well. This is the opposite of anti-racism. It is racism. 
It is racism. It's constantly focusing on the differences. Collectivism uh, is involved in there as well. It's categorizing people in groups. And when you do that, you have a lot of bad outcomes. We've seen that throughout history. Um, I want to go to um, this is also from the Smithsonian uh, website. It's called Let's Talk for Concerned Citizens. And I I want you to make sure that you're taking some action here, Dan. Uh, As a white person Mm. Uh, for concerned citizens, whiteness operates uh, in covert and overt ways that affect all of us. It can appear as practices within an institution or accepted social norms. Since whiteness works almost invisibly, we may not always be aware of how it manifests in our daily lives. Thinking critically about your social conditioning and the values you have adopted as fact, ask yourself, What are some aspects of whiteness you've internalized? How can these be hurtful to you and others? What are some ways you plan on combating them? I hope you do have some plans to combat your whiteness, Dan. Yeah, interestingly, on the same topic, too, uh, Stu, did you know that all men are wife beaters? And um, (laughs) uh, sometimes it just doesn't. And they're they're abusive in one way or another. And so sometimes we just don't realize it. So I want you to just examine it long and hard enough, Stu, until you finally see the ways that you're abusive to your wife, whether it's verbally or uh, I mean, this is just ridiculous. It's just like I've come up with this thing that I'm, you know, when you have to preface it again, that it's invisible and you almost can't see it. And that should be a red flag that maybe this is a load of crap. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, isn't it, uh, let's just take this for a second. That whiteness is a race and blackness is a race and it is a it's something that is really important for a second. When you say what are the aspects of whiteness you've internalized, how does it hurt other people? You have to, I I would think, assume and apply this to uh, let's let's take it to South Africa right now. Right. We know that that there was a lot of racism there before. There's still all sorts of racial strife there. Um, But, you know, now the the black uh, group is a majority group. So are they did they have have they internalized their blackness? If groups that are like, you know, is, you know, an African country that is that might be um, a majority black country. Are they do they do they get the same criticism here or is it only the skin color of white that has all of these problems? It's really hard to understand. It just seems like this is just a way to make a bunch of cash going to corporations and holding them up at gunpoint. Yeah. And then and this is what happens to when you have faulty presuppositions like like you heard it and you just read it there, you know, saying, uh, you know, about your about your whiteness. How's it harmed people? Well, you're presupposing that just by being white, you're harming people. And so uh, but that's a faulty presupposition, because as you exposed with that example of South Africa right there, not every situation is that way. And so it disproves this theory flat on its face by showing an example where white people uh, don't have that advantage and don't have that power over other people. So what do you say to this dumb theory when you implant it into that situation? It falls apart because the premise is faulty and it's not based on a universal principle. And this is what happens uh, when we base things on anything other than a universal principle. Um, and that's why we test these things. And that's why we we run them through and talk them out, because eventually you start to see, you know, the shine starts to wear off on it. And you know, you can see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I I think we need to apologize to Governor Blackface in Virginia uh, because, I mean, it says right here, uh, what are some ways you com- plan on combating your whiteness? Maybe that's what he was doing. I mean, maybe the blackface thing was him just combating his own whiteness and yeah. we should apologize he to felt, him. 
He's yeah, he's so bad he just didn't want to be white anymore. <laughs> All right, let me do one more video here before break. I know we're going a little long, but this is All a right. good one. This is uh, this is from a TED Talk, also posted on a website that you paid for. Congratulations. Uh, this is a web is a, a TED Talk about white men. Let's get in the room with a group of white guys and spend four days examining ourselves. Mm. What does it mean to be white and be male? And for many of us, heterosexual. We called it a white man's caucus. <laughs> Dan, how soon do you plan your white man's caucus? Oh, look, this is a great idea. I mean, who would have not? I mean, why haven't we thought of getting a bunch of white guys together to just marinate on our whiteness a little bit? <laughs> and uh, I can't think of any white groups that have gotten together to talk about their whiteness uh, yeah. in history that have and it's turned out poorly. So I say, why not? Let's do it. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great idea. Sometimes they got together and wore fancy white hoods and they, yeah. they lit some fires in certain neighborhoods. Other times they've taken over entire nations in Europe and that turned out really well, too. Let's get all the white people together and talk about how important it is to be white. Let's <laughs> just learn about our whiteness, too. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. Why do, why do you want to vilify us so much? <laughs> well, uh, I, I know. It's, it's really, really sad. I want to come back because we're talking about white skins now. But on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about red skins. Yes, they're still the freaking red skins until they come up with their new freaking name. We're back in a second. Trying to sell your home is challenging, so you need a real estate agent that is going to be there and take charge of the situation. You don't want a real estate agent that's white. No white real estate agents on realestateagentsitrust.com. Now, that's not actually their policy. They think maybe merit is the way to go. It's an interesting philosophy. Uh, Glenn Beck came up with it. He said, you know, what if we judge uh, real estate agents based on the, the ability to work, the merit behind their actual job performance? That's an interesting concept. Or we can just go, and when that homeless person moves just the right way, we can get the phone number off the bench and just call that person. Look, having someone to screen through all of the agents to find the ones that you like, that, can, that know your area, that can do the job better than anyone, realestateagentsitrust.com. It's a great idea, and it works really well. It's worked for thousands of our listeners over the years. If you're looking to purchase a home, be sure to partner with the best. The name says it all, realestateagentsitrust.com. Learn more at realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. We're back with Dan Andrews, managing editor of Faithwire, and unfortunately, a Redskins fan, a team that doesn't yeah. even exist anymore. Look oh, at this from my childhood, too. I don't know if you can see that. That goes there back goes. a long way. Is that okay? Yeah. Are you allowed to hold that up on television? You jerk. I don't know. I don't know. I'm probably going to get canceled now. <laughs> uh, the Redskins uh, obviously got rid of their name this week. They don't have a replacement yet. You said on these airwaves that if they got rid of the name, and, and you did say the logo too, but that does seem like it's happening. Yeah. The name and the logo look like it's gone. No Native American imagery. Uh, you said you would abandon not only the team, but the entire league. I did. And, uh, and as of now, I would say nothing changes. The only thing that uh, I'm worried about right now is our longstanding fantasy league that um, I keep just, I'm, I've been horrible at, but I'm just like, I've got to, I won it the first year. And then it's been like 27 years since I've won it again. It's like, I've got to get it one more time. But how am I going to do that if I'm not watching the league? But um, it's possible you know, though, for you, if you don't know anything about the league in a given year, you might do better. 
I mean, I just that's uh, that's you're absolutely 100 percent correct on that. I have been absolutely horrible. But but my stance has been like they could have went with the Washington Warriors or something like that, mm. um, because I feel like even though I don't really think they should cave on the name because it was not intended to be negative. The Indians themselves came up with that name um, as a term of endearment. So uh, for themselves. So I thought like the Washington Warriors would at least be you're still sticking and not caving. But because there, there's no reason to change the logo. If you look at the history, it's absolutely zero. We've gone over it. But um. So, no, I haven't really changed on that, and I don't – just the Social Justice League, I mean, I just can't do it. And it's frustrating. I, I just love the sport, and I do love the league. I, you know, I, I don't I, – I can't help it, you know. You know I'm just um, – I'm in love, and I can't help myself. Um, I will say just that wait, – Just wait until they equate those eagles to uh, the Nazi symbols, Stu, and then you have to change to the, to the Philadelphia Greens or something. No, they only do that to Donald Trump when he has an eagle. Then they say that it's the Nazi eagle. <laughs> it's funny because, again, the eagles are the only team named after a giant set of government programs. So their name is as – you can't get rid of government programs. Uh, so they <laughs> should be totally going fine. anywhere. I think safe. I know it's totally safe. Um, so on the Redskins, um, another thing happened this week. Big rumors started kind of going up on Twitter and all these other sites saying that Dan Snyder, the o- owner, was in big trouble. A big report was coming uh, from the uh, Washington Post this week. Just brace yourself for it. It's going to be the biggest thing ever. People were speculating that maybe he was involved with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, it was all. Sort- I mean, it went down some dark roads. And then the story came out in the Washington Post, not exactly Epstein level uh, situation. I mean, it was serious for sure. But, you know, I don't know if the, 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 the pre-rumor hype changed the, the way this story felt like when it dropped. Yeah, I think it absolutely did. And uh, it may cause a lot of people to speculate, including myself. Maybe uh, Snyder's personal PR team was the one leaking all of these, you know, bombshell leads that he was trafficking children around the world and the Redskins were some sort of child trafficking program. Because when this story came, it, it definitely kind of it kind of hit with a dud, even though, like you said, the accusations are serious, of course. Um, and, you know, there's 15 women. And so, uh, you know, but, you know, we've we've heard this is a similar story to what we've heard before. Um, so uh, so it just didn't have as far as national media goes, it didn't have the same impact as something like child trafficking would have. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting to if you haven't seen the story, it's a long story. I don't know that it's worth the read. It, you know, it's weird because the accusations basically say this was a, you know, a locker room culture. Right. It, it has a lot of accusations and things that are wrong. Clearly, uh, a lot of, uh, I would say, executives complimenting uh, younger female workers anatomy. Uh, which I would say is the most consistent claim. There was no, you know, there was no sexual assault type of uh, situation, uh, but it was, you know, still a bad work environment. And people say that Dan Snyder has been running a team for a long time. He sets the agenda there and the the, the culture is bad. Uh, ha- that being said, Dan Snyder is accused of absolutely nothing in this article. There is not one woman who says he did anything wrong. There is not one woman who said that he made a comment or said something sexually suggestive or berated anybody. All they're saying is he should have known and corrected it earlier. I don't know that that gets him to fire, fire himself and have to sell the team. No, he's, he's definitely not going to fire himself and sell the team. Um, unfortunately, because for us Renskits fans, um, you know, of course, I'm on the way out, uh, depending on this name, what, what they do. Um, so uh, but it, which, of course, kind of left me with a little bit of mixed emotions on that promise, because Snyder has been a horrible owner. <laughs> if you're a Redskin fan, he's been absolutely terrible 
in every imaginable way. And I mean, even if you look at 2018, when they had the cheerleader scandal, it was a very similar uh, claim by the cheerleaders who said they were kind of brought on these VIP trips with sweet holders and all this stuff and, and kind of, you know, forced to do topless shoots and flirt with the guys and all this stuff. And then, you know, here we are two years later and Snyder still only has like one HR employee. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, it just shows how horrible of a manager he's, he is and he's been. And, and when you look at the people he's employed, if the things that are, uh, you know, these guys are accused of doing are actually true. Um, and, and it wasn't, it was all unwanted advances and all of that. Um, it just shows that why this organization has been such a horrible, miserable wreck the whole time. I mean, how dumb do you have to be as a senior executive to be texting and commenting and, and doing, I mean, first of all, you have to be a dirtbag. Mm -hmm. Second of all, how dumb do you have to be to be doing all this stuff and putting all this out there? Um, just thinking you're, you're so arrogant. You're thinking that no, gee, no one's ever going to want to take the Redskins down. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, you're brilliant, dude. Um, so to me, it just reflects on why they've been so bad as an NFL franchise. Because they could have possibly spent some of the time they were chasing 20-year-olds uh, and maybe spent it on evaluating free agents, and there would have been some better results. Uh, yeah. and, and this is one of the true pieces of tragedy for myself, which is, one of the comforts of being an Eagles fan is you're in the division with the Redskins, uh, owned by Dan Snyder. You're going to get two wins a year. Uh, you're going to get it. two wins a year there. You've got uh, Gettleman running the Giants, who's terrible. Uh, they've been bad for years and years and years. And then the Cowboys, obviously, are a complete joke and always have been. So you, it's, it's, a, it's a nice little cushy spot you're in. And I, if the Redskins get a good owner and turn into a good team, this could be tragic. Yeah, I know. I think I think that uh, and, well, that would be the irony here is I've suffered as a as a Redskin fan for all of these decades uh, <laughs> since since they lured me in as a kid and I was good. You know, they were good and won championships. I got to enjoy that. And then for the next, you know, 25, 30 years, they've been absolutely terrible. And I've had to suffer through that. Now I'm going to abandon the team. They're going to get, you know, all this culture change and then they'll be good, but I won't be cheering for them because they're going to be the Washington woke scolds or something. You know. <laughs> it's possible you've been the problem the whole time. I think we should consider that. I, I, I want to bring up one more thing. We've got about 30 seconds left here, Dan. There's one story in this yeah. story that I found particularly odd, which was a management uh, a guy in upper management that everyone was very complimentary of, that he was a good guy. Um, saw one of these incidents go down and went over to the woman who was the victim of it and said, hey, if you want me to go with you to management and report this, I will back you up. I'm your witness. And she said, you know, no, that's OK. I don't really want that to happen. Forget it. Um, so he didn't do it. He's now being attacked because he should have reported it, even though she said she didn't want it reported. I don't know if anybody can keep track of these rules anymore. No, I mean, it's always changing. The goalposts are always moving. And um, it just seems like the MO is to just, I don't know, get people to be afraid and willing to just submit to whatever you want. Um, it's it's definitely a bullying and a fear mongering type culture that we're we're going to be living in here in the future, it looks like. Yeah, it unfortunately. Seems like you should be praising somebody who does uh, something like that. Dan Andros, a good friend and managing editor of Faithwire, unfortunately, a Redskins fan, kind of, at least right now. We'll see what happens with that. For now. Uh, check out his YouTube page and make sure to subscribe. Uh, we're back in a second. So I'm on vacation next week. Uh, we'll have some, if you're watching the linear feed, you'll see some pretty good interviews and good shows from uh, in the first hundred episodes or so. Um, I want to remind you as well, while I'm gone, one way you can help keep this show on the air 
is go to studosmerch.com. We've got a couple of these. There's a couple of these. We haven't seen these before. Sorry, can't make it. Self-quarantined. That T-shirt's important now because you're starting to go out and have to meet people again, and you're going to want to avoid them. So that's a good excuse to avoid them. I uh, particularly like this hoodie. Uh, this is a cool one, I think. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah. Stu does America hoodie. There's also uh, it's great whatever T-shirts and uh, all sorts of stuff. Oh, of course, Andrew Cuomo is awful. You've got uh, Nancy Pelosi sucks pen, all that stuff. I appreciate you going and buying it if, if, if it's if it's right for you. Whatever. You know, it's great. Whatever. That's the way it works here. I'll see you in a week. Good night. <laughs>